Boldness makes even the smallest animal dangerous. Robert Greene. To say that I'm excited about this podcast would be a complete understatement. Robert Greene has been a mentor and almost in the realm of a hero of mine for many, many, many years. His books, uh, especially Mastery and the 48 Laws of Power, and especially his newest book, The Laws of Human Nature, had a massive impact on the way that I view my life and other people. And I'm going to simply keep it at that. I'll let Robert Greene take it from here. It's been an honor, and I truly hope that you find something that resonates uh, with Robert Greene's message and dive into his work, uh, even his comeback from, from major health issues over the last few months, and he still made it on our show, and it's, it's a real, um, it's a complete honor. So I truly hope you enjoy the episode, and that's all I got to say for that. Enjoy. All right, guys, welcome back to yet another episode. And Robert, I spent forever trying to craft an introduction. I usually try to hook the listeners so they listen to the whole thing. And I try to craft this whole huge introduction, all this fluff to make it all exciting. But I feel just saying Robert Green is enough to get people who actually know your work to listen. And if you don't know Robert Green's work, I want to say made a huge impact on my life, and we'll be getting into it. Um, so thank you for taking the time, Robert, and I'm really excited to get into some stuff today. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. I may shoot myself in the foot here, but I hope I have this right. 1998, you wrote 48 Laws of Power. 2001, yeah. Art of Seduction. There was a little time gap of about six years. 33 Strategies of War came out. In 2009, you wrote the book 50th Law with 50 Cent. 2012, Mastery. And then there's this nice little section of time. Um, where your new book was born, Laws of Human Nature. Am Correct. I, and that was in October in 2018, so it was at the end of last year. Correct. Awesome. I'm, I feel there's a difference between, I read a lot, like reading is my life. I see behind you. Yeah, many books, I'm, I'm sure I'm nowhere near where you're at, but many books I read, and I try to take one thing I learned from the book, I put it on the back of the cover, and I don't read the next book until I took action on that one thing, because most books, 150 pages, 180 pages, they... They dance around the idea. Yeah. They, they, they write what they feel. They did a little bit of research. Obviously, your books, you spend a lot of time, a lot of energy, probably make a lot of sacrifices to research probably the hell out of these books and write these four, five hundred, six hundred, I think 48 Laws of Power was like almost 600 pages, 598 or 597. Oh, that's Laws of Human Nature. Laws of Human Nature, correct. Um, sorry, so you obviously put a lot of time and energy. So I don't read your books. I literally break them apart, study them, and since I read The 48 Laws of Power, they've been a huge part of what I do. To give you some context, all of our guests we've had before this episode, it's usually marketers, like the biggest names in marketing, um, a lot of business strategy, and why your books were like the foundational books that got me into marketing was years ago, I was actually in Los Angeles because that's my happy place, I go there, and I'm frustrated because... My life's not working out. No one's reading my work. No one's watching my videos. No one's buying anything for me. Back then I had a small, it was like a fitness business. Couldn't convince, couldn't persuade, and felt really stuck. And then I read 48 Laws of Power. And there was a few laws, um, and I won't even get into them, but there was four or five laws that really stood out. Um, 
especially court attention at all costs. There's no negative or positive attention. And that got me, it literally changed the course of my life. And it was like the gateway drug into marketing and understanding people. So for everyone listening who's like, why is Robert Greene, this author on the podcast, is because it's directly related to what we're trying to accomplish through our marketing. So I'm really excited to have you on the show. And I'm going to bring it back around to you just to give you some context of what's really going on here. What's your, and I don't want to drop like this huge question right off the bat, but what's your motivation? Like you, you spend a lot of time writing these books. What's, what's the why behind these books and why are you so driven to put these books out into the world? I know you're probably already thinking about the next book. I am, yeah. Right? What's, what's the drive behind that? What's the, what's what's the why behind it all? Well, you know, there's two parts to that question. I mean, why the content? So <clears throat> power was a subject that I've always been very interested in. I have a kind of a strategic f- point of view of life. I'm always looking at what's really motivating people, what's happening behind the curtain, the things we don't see, you know, because we we're, we humans are so focused on appearances, on what the, the front that people present. And I'm always thinking, what's behind that smile? What's behind that friendly demeanor? Is there something hidden? I've been like that since a child. So when I had a chance to write my first book, after having so many experiences in many different different, um, workplaces, journalism, film, I had it maybe 80 different jobs before I wrote a book. I just, it was a subject that came very naturally to me. And also, you know, I I saw a lot of very sort of strange power games being played in Hollywood that kind of inspired it. And I read a lot of history. So I had this sense that the stuff that I view in the present is not very different from the things that I'm reading about in Louis XIV or Machiavelli or Julius Caesar, which is a very exciting idea if you think about Mm -hmm. it. We look so modern and high tech and everything, but the same underlying forces that made Julius Caesar suddenly cross the Rubicon River to fight Pompeii in, I forget what year, some 44 BC or something, are behind things that are happening today in politics, etc. I find that an extremely exciting idea. So that's what motivated me to write power. But when I take on the subject, what really, the other part of that question is, um, what motivates me is to get at the heart of it. So I find a lot of books are kind of thin. And I don't mean to, you know, toot my own horn at the expense of other people. But a lot of books are written quickly. They have a kind of a good idea for chapter one. There's sort of one idea there. Yeah. And then it starts kind of falling apart. Okay, you've repeated it. It's boring. You're not, it's not organized well. Yeah. It's set. When I'm tackling something like power or seduction or my version of the art of war, I want to get at the heart of it. I want to like deep dig in and get at the reality, not just sort of skim around on the surfaces of things. Yeah. So I go very hard into the research and I push myself, I push myself. So for instance, when I'm writing the 33 strategies of war, which is my version of Sun Tzu's The Art of War, um, I'm trying to make warfare and strategy relevant to everyday life, to marketing, to whatever job that you might have in, in your business, to writing a book. And that's difficult. Mm. And a lot of people write books on strategy and warfare, and they make a kind of vague connection. 
between those two spheres. I wanted to make it real for the, for the reader, something that, you know, I want to grab the reader by the collar and make them think about their own life as a kind of a warfare, as a kind of continual strategy game. So that requires effort on my part, not just research, but thinking and thinking and thinking. Am I really expressing, am I getting at the heart of the subject? That's what takes me so long. That's what's so draining. Yeah. But I'm never happy that I've, I've got, I'm never happy that I've actually got it. So if I'm trying to do human nature, I'm haunted by this feeling that there's something missing, that I haven't quite captured it. So that pushes me and pushes me to get deeper and deeper. There's a very common theme to every guest we have on because we could argue that, and I don't think the guests themselves will agree, but that they're at the top of you know, what it is they do. They're, they've, we could call it master, or they've, they do what they do very, very well. They're the best of the best in the world at what they do. And although they may not agree, there's a common trend too. They're never satisfied. They're always pushing themselves harder. And there's always a sacrifice. There's a toll um, that most people aren't willing to go. So I think most books nowadays also you can, you can smell, and I'm guilty of this, when they're marketing tactics, when they're basically fronts into the business, which is fine. You lead with value and you, and you get customers, clients. And I think that's most likely, and I'm going to ask you this question, um, but I think that's probably why your books have such an impact. But why do you think so many readers connect on such a deep level with 500-page books, which when the attention span these days is a 60-second Instagram video will, you know, most people can't even get through that. I don't know. I'm continually surprised you're right. Yeah. It should be that nobody reads these books. They're too long. Yeah. They're too involved. Um, well, you know, I have a strategy. Number one is my books have to be entertaining. Um, so I find a lot of books that even have good ideas. They kind of, my eyes start to wander. I start thinking about other things or think about my cat or the weather or whatever. They don't, they don't grab you, you know, and this is a marketing technique. Yeah. You have to pull people in and seduce them and bring them into your world. You can't force your world on them because people have their own problems. They're very distracted. So my strategy is to always start with a story. Every chapter mm. book I've written is enveloped in stories. I always begin a chapter with a story of somebody famous or not so famous in some cases. And I make it very dramatic and I try and make it suspenseful. So you're reading the story, you know that Robert is illustrating an idea with the story, but you're not quite sure what's going to happen. Maybe the person who seems to be brilliant is actually a total loser and failure, or vice versa. So there's some suspense, there's some mystery, you go further. Ah, now I give you the interpretation of the story, I tell you what I'm getting at. So already that boring feeling of being distanced from the book is gone. You're drawn in, I wanna make it fun. And then I want to make it relevant to your daily life. So I'm always thinking of how is this person going to relate this, these ideas, which could be somewhat complex, to their, to their personal life, to their family, to their spouse, to their boss. So you're hearing a story, then you're hearing more kind of ideas, and you're relating it to your own life. So I think I get away with it because I don't write a kind of book where you're supposed to read cover to cover for 500 pages. Instead, you can kind of go where you want to go and you read stories and you're entertained and you're thinking about your own life. So it's personal. It's not like yes. 
you know, it's like in college we have to study something that has no relevance at all to your daily life and your eyelids start drooping. This is like hitting you in the gut. I'm hitting you where your life is most relevant. And the other thing is I try to make my books as honest as possible. A lot of people are so PC these days and a lot of self-help books are so coddling. They're treating you like this whiny little coddling baby. They have to kind of constantly elevate. I'm trying to tell you, no, you're not as good as you think. You have problems. You have flaws. Your life isn't so great, maybe. And you're not doing things right. And there are people out there who are manipulative, who are not so good, and who are going to ruin your life. And I think people appreciate that honesty about what's really going on because our culture is full of so much bullshit and so many people telling things, telling fairy tales of what they think life should be like. So I'm kind of hitting you in the gut with some honesty. Sometimes it's a little strong. It's, it's a str- I'm doing that strategically and I'm pulling you in with stories. So that's, I think, how I get away with something I shouldn't be able to get away with. 100%. I, I heard one brilliant thing as I was kind of studying your work and really trying to get into what you've been doing lately is I think you were having an interview with uh, with Lewis Howes on his podcast and you were saying that you don't, you a lot of writers fall into you know their own legacy or that anything they produce now is going to be great. I think you talk about that in human nature as well. But uh, you say you're always trying to connect with the reader. Is this relevant to them? Which yeah. really is marketing one-on-one and it's not even marketing, it's just persuasion it's making an impact is having people listen yeah amazing um it's it's funny how you just said that because my next point i was gonna bring up when i was reading laws of human nature i went through like this emotional roller coaster because i would i'd read something and i'd start feeling like shame and guilt because i could see myself in it and i'm like wow i i do that and it's a it's a dark side of stuff you don't want to admit and then i'd go on i'd get angry because i could see how i was used as a pawn by someone who probably didn't mean to do it but i could i could I felt angry and then I felt inspired by like, okay, moving forward, like to be more aware of all the games that people play, whether they know it or not. And it got me really inspired to study it even further so I could arm myself. But then the question comes and I know you've been, this is all over media. It's like, uh, you know, uh, you even said, I'm not evil, I'm a realist. And it was called like a psychopath's Bible. They were calling the first book, The 40 Laws of Power. And although it can be taken as that, I think it can be, Good or bad. You can use it for bad, or you can use it as a bit of a, uh, you know, expand your awareness so you can do good with it and you can make sure you're not used as a pawn. Um, So, I'm not trying to dance around this question. What, when you get feedback like that, good, bad, because it can be used for bad or good, what do you usually, what are your thoughts on that? Like when the media or when critics say, psychopaths Bible. Or, and I know I've shared your book with people and a lot of the feedback would be like, this is psychopathic or this is wrong or this is deep and dark. What's, what's your thoughts on that or what's your reasoning behind well, uh, some of the stuff? Well, I don't run away from it. You know, I'm not going to apologize for something that I wrote. I, I think the book stands stood the test of time. It's selling better now than it ever has. So it obviously connects with people. But um, <clears throat> uh, there's, there's a lot of kind of falseness going on with that with that idea so i'm just trying to tell the truth i'm trying to tell what i saw what i witnessed what i think really goes on in hollywood or the music industry or in the halls of congress or in politics behind the closed doors the stuff you don't see you know 
So uh, I wanted to let it all out there. I wanted to give people all this information that I see. It used to be power was something that was monopolized in the hands of a few, mostly white men, kings and queens and or, or you know or presidents or people. Politics was all about elites. And these ideas that I talk about in the book were things that were practiced by Rockefeller, by famous politicians. And it was kind of like a closed secret world that only people who had power had access to. And I wanted to open it up. I want to tell you, always say less than necessary. It's a law that most people can really relate to. And it means that powerful people generally control how much they say. I know Donald Trump is an exception. We won't go into that. But most people who are very powerful in business or politics, they know how to control their language. They know how to think before they say something and to talk less because it gives an air of mystery and power. Well, that's something that's timeless. It has to do with human psychology. There's nothing evil about that idea. In fact, two thirds of the laws are just common sense. They have nothing to do with evil. Court attention at all costs. Never outshine the master, you know? Um, I, on and on, you know, they're, they're not all evil, but people like to hone in on this because they have their own issues, their own problems. And what I've done is I've courted attention at all costs. Every time someone says, this is a psychopathic's Bible, this is something that, you know, will ruin you or something, I just I just got a, a thousand sales right there. I hear the cash rate go ding, ding, because people are fascinated. People are fascinated by the dark side in human nature. And I'm not saying all of this is dark, but I'm, I go into it, I examine it, I look at it, and people are fascinated. You know, it's like a childlike thing where all our movies, our television shows are just absolutely full of this kind of intrigue and manipulation and violence. And people, I don't go into violence in my books, but a lot were just fascinated by it. Mm -hmm. You know, House of Cards and going on, for the, all, all TV shows are like that now. So there's something going on in our culture where people are fascinated by this, but don't want to admit it. They want to go, oh, it's evil, it's bad, you know, et cetera, et cetera. They read the book. So, you know, it's, it's a tool. Power is a tool. You know, the Bible is a great piece of literature or it can be used for terrible, justifying terrible acts. My book be used by someone who's manipulative and maybe make them more manipulative or it can open your eyes to all the manipulative bastards in your life so you can defend yourself better it's up to you as an adult to decide what to do with my book i'm not going to be your little mother or father holding your hand and more preaching at you how you should live your life love that as i was reading it i was writing down some words um and getting it ready for this and two words came out and one of them makes sense, one of them doesn't, but one was truth. I was like, it is truth. And actually I lied when I said the first, or I wasn't thinking, when I said the first book I read was 48 Laws. The first book I actually read, which is probably common with maybe some younger readers, was, uh, was the 50th Law. I oh. read that and I loved how, A, because it was short and I, back in the day I did not read many books in my mid-twenties. Um, and it was just a glimpse of reality that I resonated with because the space that I'm in, you know, we deal with a lot of coaches, experts, um, gurus, and all the things that come with that. There's this huge element of it. I'm all for positive thinking. Like great things come from thinking positive because you can overcome obstacles much, much quicker or they seem less like obstacles. But there's just this element of happy hugs 
and thinking. And oftentimes, and it breaks my heart because I see re- really well-meaning coaches or experts who have a lot of knowledge. They could share it with the world, get completely crushed because they don't understand humans. They think, you know, everyone will support my cause and they just get taken advantage of, beat, beat around it and they quit. And that's why I'm always like, read this book with an open mind. I know you're extremely positive and happy and life is working for you, but not everyone's on the same wavelength. So guard yourself. Um, and then the other one that kept coming up was, um, was um, Eminem was the word I kept writing down. And why was because a lot of his music was, and I was a big fan when I was growing up, was here's the truth, take it or leave it. And then people put blame on him when someone would you know, do something because of listening to his music. So I just love how you, it, it just kind of ties the two together. Yeah. I'm going to hopefully not, on page 284, you say, never make the mistake of praising another writer in front of another writer. <laughs> I'm not going to do that, but there's this one book that I read a few years ago that brought me into this whole idea of the dark side. And the book is, is a fluffy book, but it's called Relentless by Tim Grover, and he talks about the dark side. He was Michael Jordan's trainer, and he, uh, anyway, he, yeah, he talks about the dark side a lot. And 40 Laws of Power, you've got this massive chapter, which is 10 times longer than Tim Grover's book. Um, so I'm not praising another person for any, but uh, kidding. But it was like, what's the dark side? What does that mean to you? What are you trying to encompass with that? Well, I have a whole chapter on that in my new book. I call it The Shadow, <clears throat> borrowing this term from Carl Jung, the famous psychologist. And basically... Um, I try to explain to the reader where this dark side of every individual comes from. And I explain it in the following sense that as children, and I'm talking about very early, two, three, four years old, we're not yet socialized in the world. We haven't gone to school yet. We're not, we're basically in the family. And we have all of these natural impulses and desires we're what I would call a complete person. We feel love for our parents, but we also sometimes kind of hate them. We feel, you know, we want to bond with people and sometimes we want to hit them or do violence. We want to get revenge. And that's not just boys, it's girls as well. Girls have this dark side as well, and I talk about it. Um, We have a full range of emotions that we haven't yet learned to control or to repress. When we feel mischievous, we act out. And so slowly, this, all of these elements that are, make us a complete person that include good things and what we maybe consider not so social things are slowly repressed. We're told by our parents, come on, behave well. You know, they have their own problems, their own stresses. They want us to make their life easier. Don't act out. Don't get angry. Don't throw a tantrum. Be an angel. Then we get that pressure when we're in school, six, seven years old, Come on, be a good student, be a team player. Don't act out, don't show any, uh, any of these other sides to yourself. And all of these emotions that make the complete person, that mischievous side, that's kind of smirking little demon that's in the child, gets pushed down, but it doesn't disappear. Because nothing in our psychology ever disappears, particularly from our early years. It simply goes into our shadow, into our unconscious. And this shadow, this repressed part of ourselves is dying to come out because it's the tension that we have to keep it under wraps 
is too much. And so when we're 23, 24, and we've totally gotten rid of it, and everybody thinks that we're this great, nice person, suddenly when we're on, under a lot of stress, that shadow comes up and we yell at somebody, or we, we give a mean comment, or we do something that's kind of strange that even surprises us. Mm-hmm. Then we'll say, oh, please, that wasn't me. That just was one time. But actually it is you. That is your shadow that's coming, that's speaking, that's trying to be let out. So the more you try and push it down, the more it will come up in weird, unconscious behavior. And you see it all the time in celebrities, in the news, of actors or politicians suddenly caught out doing something that's completely contrary to their reputation, to their character. You can think of dozens of examples that come to mind. You go, wow, what happened there? You know, why is Tiger Woods suddenly acting like this? What's going on? It's that repressed side of Tiger that's been pushed down for so many years. He can't help it. It's coming out in all the affairs he's having, the drugs he's taking, and, and on and on and on. So Jung called it a thick shadow. The more you try and repress it, some people have a thicker shadow because they're, they're trying to hide so much. And then it comes out in even more weird, darker types of behavior. And I'm, all I'm trying to say is this is very human. Don't feel ashamed that you have these impulses. Don't be ashamed that you are that you have this little mischievous child within you. Come to accept it, come to see it for what it is, and accept it and find a way to incorporate that dark side into your daily life. So when you're talking about Michael Jordan, who definitely had a dark side, it was like he was just super competitive. He wanted to beat the hell out of his opponents. He couldn't stand anyone, even in a game, a pickup game or playing horse, mm-hmm. channeled all of that dark energy into becoming the greatest basketball player ever. He turned it into something competitive, into something productive. I want you to see your shadow and find a way to channel your ambition, your aggressive energy into something that's productive and not so negative and destructive. But the most important thing is to stop pretending that you're somebody who doesn't have a shadow, that you're somehow an angel that's exempt from human nature. You are not. You have it. Everybody has it. Do you think that that is what's going on with, I've been studying lately a lot of, there's a, there is a movement, and, and I have a few key people, I won't even get into it, some of them were on the podcast, talking about, like, they put on workshops for, um, for this one specifically for men, but I think it goes for both sexes, of, like, where they go and hunt, they go and kill, they go and go back to, like, that the natural instinct we have Kill to like what? destroy something like animals hunting, um, you know, whatever it is they do. There's some fight camps where they like actually, you know, they don't fight to the death, but they, they <laughs> overcome the fear of fighting another human being like we used to. Um, do you think like as the world gets more and more polished and with the social media and with the perfect and we're suppressing more and more of this, it's, it's coming out in like 10 times more violent ways or just blindsiding people. Um, would you agree with that? Is that that's definitely social media is a magnet for the dark side of human nature yeah. because you, you can be anonymous yeah. because you can say things, you can be mean, you can say really nasty stuff yeah. and you can get away with it. No police officer is going to come knocking on your door. Nobody knows who you are. You can pretend you're the most macho, yeah. angry, violent person. when In fact, you're in real life. You're probably this meek, timid little person. Yes. A lot of trolls are actually, yeah. trying to get out, pretend that there's something that they're not. I'm sure you get those emails too. They always blindside me when I get an email from someone I do not know who went out of the way to write four paragraphs about how much I suck 
or how much I should die. Like, we get those. I'm sure you do too. It always fascinates me um, where that comes from. When I was just talking about this right before the podcast, I'm like, oh man, Robert Greene is, like, obviously you've wrote in all these books. You're probably a people watcher. You're probably always, like, probably on some level um, trying to read people and figure out, I'm like, oh, is he going to be reading me? What should I say? I was, like, getting all self-conscious. Is that exhausting? The real question is, does it take away from the humanness? Like, being human, do we enjoy being seduced by that at times? Like, to be on all of the time and always be computing and figuring out, let's just say if we locked ourselves in a cave for three years and mastered the laws of human nature and then went back out into the world, would it, it take away from the humanness of, of who we are? And is it exhausting to always be trying to figure out the motives or do you pick and choose when you're in what situation to actually um, you know, play the part? And I'm going to get into page 82 just to, uh, in a second here, but... What are your thoughts on that? Well, uh, I say in most of the introductions to all of my books that I'm advocating a kind of a light spirit, that this is a game, you know, and it should be fun and it should be interesting. So we are social animals to the core. That's who we are. We don't have, we don't really even exist. Think of yourself as an individual. It's not really existing. You, who you are now is a composite all the influences in your life of your parents, your teachers, your friends, your colleagues, your boss. You are a social animal. You only exist in relation to other people. And the problem that a lot of people have now is they're divorced from that. They live in their little bubble. We live in very narcissistic times where people are continually self-absorbed. So the loss of human nature is about getting outside of yourself. Stop being so self-absorbed. Stop thinking that the world revolves only around you. Stop thinking that your problems are the only, that you're the only person that's facing mortality that has going to die. Everybody is going to die in this pandemic. It's a terrible moment for everybody. You are not alone. We're all connected. So why should that somehow detract from your humanness? Why should that be a depressing thing? It's therapeutic. If you're sitting there in a group of people, instead of thinking of this sort of heavy, Machiavellian, devilish thing of, I'm trying to figure out what, who's, what's really going on. Think of it as this kind of elevated thing where you're trying to understand people and get inside their worlds and see where they're coming from instead of always obsessing about yourself. Why, what are they thinking? What are their problems in life? So why should it be, the idea that that's like something heavy or inhuman, it's exactly the opposite. You are being inhuman by your self-absorption and learning to observe people is actually becoming more human. And I make the point in this book that we are not, that we have to become human. We have to, we have to take these traits that we that evolved millions of years ago and actually use them for positive, more pro-social uses. So it's not about learning how to, what's going on in people's world just to manipulate them, which may be sort of slightly the bent in power, and I acknowledge that. In this book, it's more about how to get inside the, the thinking and perspectives of the people. And empathy is a very powerful tool. And I think it, it actually makes life a lot more pleasurable in a way. It's, a, it's a one massive trait in ultra-successful people. They are usually looking and trying to understand, um, I'll say how to add value, but it's really the same idea. Of they're, they're not always thinking about themselves. They're thinking about everyone else and trying to understand the needs of other people. Well, there's two sides to that. 
So I have a chapter on narcissism, <clears throat> and I try and make the point is you're a narcissist reader. You're reading this book. Don't try and tell me. That was a hard chapter for me to read. I had to confront a lot of things in that chapter, so I liked it. Actually, actually you know, it made me think about myself. But mm. the idea that you would say, oh, I'm not a narcissist, it's him, is a very narcissistic statement yeah. in itself. We are all self-absorbed. It's come, and I explain why in the book. I'm not going to go into that now. But we all are fascinated with our own ideas, our own thoughts, etc. So I forgot what my where I was going with this. Um, <laughs> hold on a second. Um, what were we talking about? Um, the um, the narcissism, the um, the two things. So seeing value, adding value to people. Um, you know the, the the rule of success. Or one successful trait of successful people is always looking at everyone else, giving value. Oh, yeah, now I know. Thank you. Thank you. Thank mm-hmm. you. So, you know, I call it um, most of us are functional narcissists as opposed to people who are deep narcissists like a Donald Trump or somebody like that. Um, even I would consider Elon Musk, who's very successful, as kind of a deep narcissist, which doesn't mean you can't be productive or be successful. A lot of very deep narcissistic people are very successful and very charismatic, and I explain why. But the solution that you have is twofold. You can either get outside of yourself through other people, or you can get outside of yourself through your work and pour yourself in your energy into your work. So someone like Steve Jobs is extremely successful, but he's not really good with people. He got better later on. He wasn't the most empathetic person, but he took all of his problems, all of his own demons, and he poured it into his work, into making things. So that's the other side of it. That's the other way to kind of take that narcissistic energy and channel it into something productive. Absolutely. I think this entire book, as I, as I kind of, I revisited all, um, all your other books, I just trying to check my notes and seeing where I was when I was reading that. And then when I stumbled across page 82, and I, I won't read the whole thing, but basically, uh, it started with uh, your a task as uh, as a student of human nature is twofold. First, you must understand and accept the theatrical quality of your life. That kind of what you were just mentioning. That kind of um, you know see the comedy of it all. It doesn't have to be this evil, bad thing. Um, and then second is you must not be naive to mistake people's appearances for reality. I feel like every book that you've written from the Forty Laws of Power and Mastery, um, all does does this book to you feel like it's the it's the accumulation? It's the You've taken all these ideas because most of it is about self-awareness and watching others and the motives and put it all into one. Would you say this is like the book that brings all the other books together? In a way, it is. It's kind of the synthesis of a lot of my thinking. And there's little bits of each of those, of the, those books in this new book. And yeah, I can find out where that is. But it is kind of the culmination of all that I've learned and experienced over the last 20 years for sure. And you bring up the kind of theatricality of life, which is a major theme in all of my books. Mm -hmm. And it's something that people don't think about, but you're continually acting in life. You're never, you're never being exactly honest. You don't, when you talk to your, your wife or your, or your um, children, you talk in a different way than you do to your boss. You suddenly put on a different persona. What does that say about you in the course of a day? When you're dealing with maybe 20 different people from different walks of life, you're acting differently depending on who you're with. So you are an actor and just admit it. 
admit, don't think that everything you do is this comes from some great authentic part of yourself. Being a human being means continually performing, right? And some people are good performers and some people are not good performers. And there's no fault problem with that. But why there should be this negative concept of, oh, you're acting or you're performing, you're not being yourself. And I bring up the question in my books, who are you? What is the self you're talking about? It's not what you think you are. You are more complicated than you imagine. So I want to open your idea to the fact that we talked about appearances and reality. What people are presenting to you in daily life, particularly at work, is not necessarily who they are. They're performing. They're trying to, you know, um, abide by the codes in that particular office or wherever they are. So it's just opening your eyes to a different way of looking at social life. When do you think people are who they are? Is it like behind the closed doors? Is it, you know, waking up in the middle of the night? Is it the first hour in the morning when they wake up? Um, when do people completely, and I'm trying to get into the question or it's kind of a segue into, you deal with a lot of successful people. I know you were saying you consult um, and you, you know, you're, you're on a lot of different boards and you don't share too many details, but I'm sure they're extremely powerful and extremely successful people. And you mentioned, I don't know what interview it was in, you were saying that you're constantly amazed at how little they understand human nature. When are, and I guess the question is twofold, is when are people being, when are people not playing these games? When are they dropping the masks? And, and why do you think that, obviously these people attain great heights of success, uh, whatever success means to you, but do they subconsciously, have they figured out through trial and error how to deal with people, but they're not fully aware of it, and your book kind of brings into light, I know it's a twofold question, sort of unrelated, but... Um, when are people themselves? Let's start with that one. When do they drop the masks? Well, um, you know, in intimate relationships, if you've known someone for a while and you feel comfortable and you know you can show. So a big part of the shadow that we didn't cover are your insecurities and your vulnerabilities that you, that you sense when you're a child and you try to hide and disguise as you get older. So a lot of really macho, tough men are actually disguising deep layers of insecurities. It's their way to compensate for it. Um, and I'm showing you that's how you should interpret behavior like that. Well, if you know somebody really well and you're able to show your vulnerabilities and you're able to feel comfortable to reveal your dark side, then maybe you're being more of yourself. But, um, you know, I have to open the question of, do you really know who you are? You begin with the assumption that you know who you are and that therefore at certain moments you're being more of yourself. And I wanted you to question that. And I begin in chapter one by showing how un unconscious motivations are actually behind 95% of what you do. So like when you purchase a product, you might think that you're doing it because you like the color or you just attract you. You're not aware of all the layers of advertising and marketing and emotional factors that went into your decision. You're not aware why you prefer this president and vote for him. You're not aware of why you're attracted to this woman or to this man. You're going through life not aware because there are unconscious processes that are governing your behavior. Neuroscientists have discovered this and it's an incredible you know, new, new frontier for us to examine. And I talk about it throughout the book. 
you are a mystery to yourself and you need to become more aware. You need to shine that light in on yourself so that you understand, you know, why are you angry? What happened in your early childhood that maybe made you have these certain patterns in life? So I don't like to begin with the assumption that I know who I am. And at some moments I'm suddenly being authentic. You know, most often you don't know who you are and it, you know, and you're kind of, you're kind of being pulled along by forces that you're not aware of. So, but it's not to say that there aren't, I talk about in the dark side, how we're attracted in the chapter. We're attracted to people, secretly attracted to people who reveal more of their dark side. Mm -hmm. Like it's a classic thing with like a rock star who's kind of shows his or her kind of demons, right? Or an actor or whomever. And we're kind of attracted to them because we feel that they're kind of more authentic. So if you're able to incorporate more of your dark side, and I give examples of it, like um, Abraham Lincoln was an example of somebody I think who really brought out his, a lot of his demons and dark side in public life and made it work for him and it made him very human. The, that's a kind of authenticity, being yourself that I think is very resonant with people. And it means being comfortable with this other side of your personality that we were talking about earlier. I remember writing a few pages, I don't know if it was in this book or not, I think it was in this book, um, about, um, I wrote a, I wrote a kind of article on authenticity. And I think I got inspired by some of your work. I think it was even in this book. I, I hope I don't do this injustice. And it was about the act of like what makes someone authentic and politicians and people who seem authentic are very good at, you know, they know how to show the authenticity. I think it was in this book. Yeah, it might have been in Forty Laws, but um, that that it's awesome. So that really brings us to self awareness. In every chapter in this book, you sort of give a solution, or here's your next step, or here's your. You kind of use the word solution or insight, awareness, being alert, train yourself, focus, analyze. What for someone who wants to study this or dive into this? Five hundred and ninety-two pages or ninety-seven pages is uh, is hard to digest. All of this. Someone wants to take actionable steps. I was just saying you should create a course or a workshop and you probably shun that idea because you, you probably love these deep things, but some kind of training on, um, on starting to study this and apply it. Where would you tell people to start? And I have a note of would we start by trying to understand ourselves first before we study others? Would we start analyzing why we do what we do? Um, and would you take things, you know, how would you coach or mentor or help someone through starting to dive into this idea of, of self-awareness and studying others and figuring out other people's motives? And Well, um, you know, I, t I saw one of the main chapters in the book has to do with nonverbal behavior, chapter three, because a lot of what humans communicate is through body language, tone of voice, behavior patterns, posture, etc. And um, I wanted to make it practical because a lot of books on nonverbal behavior are interesting, but they don't really, I can't really find a way to apply them in my daily life. And in that chapter, I try to show you, here's how you can apply it. And it's kind of a model for the book in general in some ways. So I say the first, the reason why you're not listening, why you're not observing people, why you're self-absorbed, it's because you find you find yourself more interesting than other people. 
you find your problems, your issues, your own anger and frustrations more interesting than what the other person is experiencing. And no amount of preaching, no amount of books, no amount of workshops is ever going to change that until you suddenly flip that around and start realizing that people and their ideas and their problems are actually more interesting than your own or just as interesting as your own. And you want to delve into that. You want to observe them. We are emotional creatures. We like to think of ourselves as these rational thinking beings, but really emotions govern so much of what we do and how we think. And you need to be excited by the idea of people and want to get into their worlds and figure them out and what makes them tick. And if you do, if you can make that flip, and I give you ideas on how you can, um, then suddenly the game turns. Suddenly, next time you're in a cafe and you're talking to someone you just met, you've tuned, you tune out that, that monologue in your head about your own ideas. Mm. You're observing them. You're observing them. You know, is that smile real or is it fake? When I say something and they react this way with their body language, what does that say about them? And you start trying to decode this behavior. But none of that will ever happen until you make that initial flip. And that's a lot of what this book is about. So... I could have a million workshops for people. I could give you perfect yeah. clues on how to use my book. But it won't mean anything if you're locked inside of yourself, right? So one of the main things I'm trying to show you is that you love movies. Some of people like to read fiction, novels. But mostly people nowadays watch TV, television shows or movies because you're fascinated by the characters. Oh, this man, he's, he might be a psycho killer. He might be... A serial killer. What's going on? What's going to do next? What's motivating him? You're fascinated because a writer has shown you a very interesting character. Well, look at your life the same way. Look at the people you encounter as actors in some very strange drama. Even that salesperson at CVC has some kind of weird drama going on in his or her life that you're not aware of. And I'm as a writer, I'm always paying attention to people, even those who you normally would never pay attention to. And I'm trying to imagine their story and their world and where they came from, what it's like to feel and be them. That's what this book is really about. And if I could only accomplish that by hitting it over the head about this is the path to becoming a better social animal, then I have accomplished something. Because then you're going to go out on your own and take all the ideas in my book and start to apply them. So if I had a workshop, I would just focus on strategies for getting people to be interested in other people, more interested in other people than themselves. You know, and I have strategies for that. I don't want to go on forever. Mm -hmm. if, if you're listening to this and you have not read The Laws of Human Nature or any of Robert Greene's work, and I'm going to, I just want to share one thing of, I used to struggle hard in my life and not understanding people. I know I just shared uh, this right before the episode with you, Robert, but um, I didn't understand why nothing was clicking, nothing was working. Um, and when I started studying your work and putting it all together, and I think The Laws of Human Nature, that's why I love this book, is because it brought all that together into like an actual guidebook. Like you could read it and study it. It moved me forward only because I started understanding why people do what they do and even though I had a background in acting, I still didn't understand it. Um, and I wondered why things wouldn't work. So if you have not 
order this book or have you not read it or any of Robert Greene's work, I want you to pause it and take some action on Amazon and do it. Just Google it, search it, you'll find it. Why are we not taught this in school? Well, it's a, it's a very good question because it's like the most important thing that you, most important form of knowledge you can ever have in life. 100%. You know, people study in college is the most obscure, weird things, you know, with genre films and who knows the, the, the subjects you can study in college. And, but the one thing that's most important, the psychology of interpersonal relationships, what makes people tick, maybe in some psychology classes, but I don't even think they're doing it there. So it's, it's, it's a great question. And I don't know because people don't, my answer to that is we assume that we know people that it's not a form of knowledge that we need. We need to learn technical things. We need to learn how to code. We need to learn how to, you know, do a marketing techniques, et cetera. Yes. But people, you know, I deal with them every day. That's not something I need to learn. It's not a skill that I need. I deal with, you know, I'm just myself. I, I deal with people as I deal with them. Why do I have to learn that? Why do I have to study it? Well, that fact that you think that you know people that you don't need to study is actually the problem, you know? And so I think we take it for granted that we understand the people we deal with until yeah. we have problems and patterns. And you can, you can get by in your 20s because you're so young and eager, enthusiastic, and you're cool looking and everything's great and people like you. But as you get into 30s, as you accumulate pain and frustration and bad relationships and things that didn't work out, then your lack of understanding people and yourself it starts to wear on you and starts to cause problems and bad things will happen. So I want to make it so you, at an earlier age in your 20s, when your mind is so fresh and open, that you take this seriously. And Mastery, my fifth book, the one before this, was all about how to become extremely creative and brilliant in your field. But I had a chapter on social intelligence because you can be the most brilliant person in whatever field you're in, but if you don't understand people, if you turn them off, if you don't know how to persuade them, if you're the kind of leader that can't get a group of people together on the same page, all of your technical brilliance is useless. So, you know, we take this thing for granted because we think, you know, I do it every day. I'm always dealing with people. But no, it's a skill that you need to develop just like any other skill. That idea of social intelligence, and I remember this because it was a turning point, is I studied and I had so much knowledge. I obsessed about the marketing and the technical and the aspects and why things weren't working. And I did all the work that it took to grow my first business. And the missing piece was, and that's why I've changed my whole way I teach things. And that's why I think everyone should just read this book before they apply anything I teach. Because it is literally the foundation of making all the technical uh, things work. And again, I see so many brilliant people and they have a hard time getting ahead right. because they don't understand people. Um, and that's why I think just the book is, I should literally make that part of the curriculum, just give people this book. Um, what's next, Robert? And I kind of have actually, maybe before that question, um, I'm hoping I could dive into it, is you spend, and I'm going to be careful with the way I ask this, but you spend a lot of time and energy, obviously, five, six years, uh, I don't know if you were researching the whole time, but you probably dive 100% into your books. Is there some form of 
balance. I know we had some recent um, health issues. Is there some, and I'm sure this is a popular question you're getting asked recently, so I don't want to like repeat the same questions to make it boring for you, but is that the only way to, that's actually the question I had written down is mastery. And that, that book changed my life. I said, I actually wrote down 10,000 hours because I always wanted things quick. And I broke down 10,000 hours. I think it was about six years if it was eight hours a day. And I was like, okay, six years, I'll be really good at what I do. It's been about six or seven now. Um, is there always have to be a sacrifice on your, on your health or personal relationships or, and I'm guilty for this myself, by the way, like a lot of sacrifices in my life to get what it is we want and master something. Um, is there a better way or is that, is there always a sacrifice? Um, would you create the work you created if you didn't do it the way you do it? Probably not. And I paid a price for it with my health to some degree. I mean, the, the stroke that I had, it isn't directly related yeah. to the book, but this probably was one of the root causes. I don't deny it. So it's a legitimate question. But, um, you know, I talk a lot about it in mastery. Um, you know, we we humans, um, our nature is we don't like anything painful and we're drawn to things that are pleasurable. So, um, and how you define pleasure in your life will determine 95% of your actions. So you might find pleasure in something, in something immediate that you have to fulfill within a few hours, either in a video game, in a movie, or getting drunk, or getting high, or hanging out with your friends. And that's, to you, what gives you pleasure. You want pretty quick gratification. You don't have a lot of patience for 10,000 hours for working towards some greater goal. And there are a lot of people like that, and it's very human. And I have a part of myself that's like that. Sure. A lazy part of myself, okay? But, um, so you might say, well, you know, we're all gonna die why put in all those hours? Why not just eat, drink, and be merry, live in the moment, have fun? Okay, but you have a price for that. You think that the alternative to what I'm talking about is just, you know, have fun. But, you know, that means you're never going to go deep into getting a skill. You're always going to be trying eight different things and never kind of mastering anything. And then by the time you're in your 30s, we live in a really tough competitive times yeah. where you can't rely on your boss or the job that you're at is going to last. It, you could be downsized tomorrow. That whole, that whole industry could disappear tomorrow because of robotics or AI. These are tough times, right? And you could face a point in your 35 years old where that pleasure principle kind of governed your life. Although you tried things, you tried to you know, be pretty good at it. And suddenly you're at a cul-de-sac, you're, you're, you're at a dead end, you know, because you haven't really acquired skills. You haven't developed patience or discipline, and now you're facing a crisis. Well, add up the emotional um, cost of that crisis, of years of that, of what it'll do on your health, on your mind, and the things that you're gonna do to get out of your depression is immense. So weigh that against the moments in your 20s when you had all that fun and pleasure. Is it worth it? On the other hand, if you take a longer version uh, a view of what is pleasurable, and I don't say pleasurable, let's call the word fulfilling. So in your life, if you made something, if you wrote a film and, and, and produced it and brought it out, or you created a product 
and you marked it and it was successful. That would have taken steps and several years to get there with some probably some tedious moments and some pain. Absolutely. But you have a tremendous sense of fulfillment. You feel proud of yourself. You feel like, ah, I've accomplished something. There's something deep inside of people that they want to, to realize their potential to some degree. So yes, you can go too far. You can become a workaholic. And that's a problem that's not really, that's not really mastery. Because I say in mastery, there has to be a, a level of pleasure and joy in the work itself. So if you're Albert Einstein, who's a classic example, he had two theories of relativity. The first one discovered when he was basically 16, 18 years old, the second one 10 years later. Each of those great discoveries took a probably 10,000 hours of mental thinking, constantly thinking. He'd be walking in the streets of Zurich and imagining still other possibilities for his theory, night and day, but he loved it. It was yeah. pleasurable. It was like juicing him up. He was so excited about finally discovering one of the greatest riddles that ever that is, you know, that has ever existed about how, you know, about the cosmos, etc. What an exciting quest. Scientists who devote 30 years of their lives to discovering something, if they have, didn't find pleasure in it, if they didn't enjoy the process, they didn't think, God, someday I'm going to have that eureka moment. They would never get that far. So mastering your subject, going through the grind, learning a skill, it, you have to see it as something leading to something great, and there has to be an emotional connection to it. So writing my books involves a lot of painful loneliness, etc. But I get so excited when I feel like I'm on the verge of, of discovering something or having the right idea, and it makes everything worth the effort. I agree you can go too far. There has to be some balance in your life. And perhaps I didn't have enough balance in my life. So there's always room for introspection and finding perhaps a better way to do it. I think you, we are the only ones who can answer that at the end of the day anyways. No one can answer that except us of like, yeah. you know, where was that line? I think everyone has their own version of uh, balance. And yeah. I am, and I know many people are, I will be eternally grateful um, for the sacrifice and the work that went into creating these books because there's not many like it. So if anything else, I, I know there's a lot of people who, who feel the same way. Two final questions. Um, I know we're just a few minutes over here, but what is next? Or are you, um, are you already brewing something next? Or do you not want to reveal it? Or maybe just a short little glimpse of what's any kind of eureka moments for your next quest? Well, the last chapter in The Laws of Human Nature is about confronting your mortality. Is <clears throat> about how do you deal with the thought that you're going to die um, and how that defines how you live. Because human nature is, we're the only animal that's conscious of our own mortality. It has a huge impact on who we are. A lot of the anxiety that you feel during the day comes under from underlying causes having to do with thoughts about your own mortality. <clears throat> and ironically enough, two months after I wrote that chapter, I nearly died myself. I had a stroke. <clears throat> if my wife hadn't been in the car with me, I would have been in a terrible accident. I would have got to the hospital too late. I would have had severe brain damage. I might have even died. So, you know, that'll kind of, make you think. It will make you think. So it brought all of the ideas in that book very 
real to me. And so, um, and I talked in that chapter in the book about turning the, the thought of mortality, or the worst thought that you could have into actually something brilliant and beautiful. What a magical thing that would be if you could take the thing you fear the most and turn it into something that can transform your life and make you feel more alive and more excited. And I call that magical little pill that will turn the thought of mortality into something so amazing and vast and incredible. I call it the sublime. And I talked about that in the chapter. And that's what I want to write this book about because I think delving into that subject is different from my other books, I understand. So I might be losing some readers, but I hope to be gaining some others. Because it's more of a, I hate to use the word, slightly more spiritual in that sense. But I think we have a deep need as humans to connect to something larger than ourselves, to get out of our day-to-day lives and connect to something vast. And I'm sort of amazed that there are so many things in life that are just, that just are hard to conceive, that are so amazing that if you thought about them every day, you would suddenly feel so much better about your own problems. Mm. And I go into that in this chapter a little bit about how the fact that you are alive right now, Lucas, that you are who you are living in that apartment or house in Vancouver is a series of the most unbelievable coincidences that the chances of you being who you are, the odds are impossible to calculate. And I go through all the steps in that. I'll be delving into that in the new book. I love that. A thought like that um, makes you realize that maybe you're alive for a reason or maybe it's, it's so weird that you're actually looking at this world now as it is and that you're not, you know, that your parents didn't meet, that we humans didn't die three million years ago as many of our ancestors did. These are thoughts that we don't put into our daily life, but that kind of expand our consciousness. And I'm fascinated by science because I think a lot of what's going on in neuroscience, for instance, in biology, in animal studies, in, in everything, in, in all aspects of science, are full of these encounters with the sublime. And so that's the direction of my new book. You know, I think it could be very therapeutic in a way. I will be first in line. I'm going to make sure I get that first copy. I've, I, I, in my early 20s, there used to be this mountain in Camus. I'd drive up it, and well into midnight, I would be obsessed with those thoughts. And still to this day, I try to almost fight it because it, there's no end to it. You can think about that for literally hours. I think it's healthy for short periods of time, but I would be fascinated to write that book. Um, so you've got yeah. a fan for that book. One final just note that, and I ask everyone this question. Some people have an answer really quick. Some people, they need two minutes of silence, and I'm cool with that. But if you could pass down with who you are right now, you know, the 15th, the 16th of June in 2019, with what you know now, to a younger version of Robert Greene at 22, 24, entering the workforce or starting to figure out what he wants for life. And this is a very open-ended question, just to get a glimpse of, of where you're at. What would you, and you had like one or two sentences, something to give him. What would you hand down and hope that he'd, he'd take in and, and use? I'd say, Robert, you're doing fine. Just do what you're doing and don't worry about it. Everything will come out right. See, I have a belief. It's called Amor Fati that I talk about in this book. It's an idea that the philosopher Nietzsche first brought up. It means love of fate. And it means looking at your life as if everything had a purpose, had a reason behind it. And that 
don't complain about the bad things that happen because the bad things happen for a reason. They're there to educate you. So nothing is really bad in and of itself. It's how you look at the world. It's kind of a stoic idea. And so my life had a particular course and it followed its own logic that led to the 48 laws of power. I was very lucky that I met a man in 1995 who ended up being the packager and producer of my first three books. So there was an element of luck involved. There was a but story I, of that, yeah. Like you were on the beach, walking on the beach. If I remember the story right, and you were kind of talking about this idea, and he's like, this should be a book. Am I on the nose for that? Yeah, we're in Venice, Italy, actually walking along the, the caves there. Um, so there's an element of luck, but the thing is, if I had met him 10, 12 years earlier, it wouldn't have mattered. I wasn't ready. Right. So I took the time and the path that I had to go on, accumulating frustrations and disappointments and heartache and depression. So by the time that I met him, I was so ready to write a book and so motivated and had learned so much that I could write it. So if I had taken a different path in life, it could have been interesting. I could have written novels. I could have become a, a screenwriter, etc. But this is the path I took. I have no regrets. I wouldn't have done anything differently uh, because I, I always, I never lost faith. I kept trying my hand at what I thought I wanted to be, which was a writer. So I think it would be, I think it would be one of those things. They have it in science fiction movies where somebody goes back in time to kind of change something in the past so something terrible doesn't happen. And they end up messing all of history and the world is destroyed because they tried to change one right. thing. If I had gone back and tried to tell him something, right. I probably would have messed Robert up completely and he would have, he wouldn't be, I wouldn't be here today. So I don't like to think that I, it's not that I didn't make mistakes. I made a lot of mistakes, but those mistakes had a purpose. So that's sort of how I answer that question. I love that. There are millions of people, I'm sure, who have massively benefited um, from your books and from the course of your life to end up how it is to create the works of art you do. So we are all eternally grateful. Robert, if someone wants to enter your world, I have a good feeling that you are not big on social media, but if someone wants to enter your world or stay up to date with, with what it is you're doing and... Um, is there, is there a platform or is there a blog or is there someone that does it for you? Is there some way to get closer to uh, Robert to follow his? Yeah, I have a website. I have a, <clears throat> there was a blog on it that I haven't written for quite a, several years, but <clears throat> archived are my old blogs, which, which you might, might find interesting. Cool. <clears throat> and that website is called powerseductionandwar.com. The and is spelled out. PowerSeductionAndWar.com. I'm going to have that link below. Um, okay. It's going to be hard to miss. And then you'll have links there to my other book, to the book for, that I wrote with 50 Cent, to Mastery, to the new book, as well as my social media, my Twitter account, my Instagram account. I do have them. I did see. I see. Twitter, you, you say these amazing little tidbits that I was trying to figure out who Robert was because I'm fascinated by that. And it's like just little tidbits of your day-to-day -day thoughts. I'm sure as you're writing or thinking, you've got these little breakthrough thoughts that look like you shared on Twitter. Um, and then I did find you on Instagram as well. So cool. Amazing. Thank you so much, Robert. It really Thank means you. a lot. It really Thank means you. a lot. Thank you. 
All right, so as always, I just want to finish off the episode with saying thank you for listening. These episodes are 100% free and they're dedicated to helping you build your coaching business because there are clients out there just waiting for you to reach them. They're waiting for you to give them a result. So do not give up on your dream and never give up on your business. Again, these episodes are 100% free. All I ask in return is that you give it a thumbs up, you give it a like, you give it a little bit of love in the comments or the reviews, and you share it with one or two coaches who you know could use help building their coaching businesses. That's it. I'm done. Thank you for listening, and I'll see you on the next.